Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. Today, our guest is Umnil Shakri, who is professor of history at UC Davis. She has degrees from the American University in Cairo, NYU in Princeton, where she did her PhD. She specializes in the intellectual and cultural history of the modern Middle East, with a particular emphasis on the history of the human sciences in modern Egypt. She has held many fellowships and awards, including a Fulbright and an ACLS fellowship. She's the author of two books and many articles. Uh, The books include The Great Social Laboratory, Subjects of Knowledge in Colonial and Postcolonial Egypt, out in 2007 from Stanford University Press, and the subject of today's podcast episode, The Arabic Freud, Psychoanalysis in Islam in Modern Egypt, just out in 2017 from Princeton University Press. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here and to speak with you today. I'm really, really excited about this. So we always start out on the New Books Network with a biographical question. So what led you to the study of the Middle East? What's sort of your intellectual biography? Sure. I think like most scholars of the region, that my reasons are both sort of personal and political. So on the personal level, I immigrated from Cairo with my parents at the age of two to the U.S., to New York and specifically. And I think uh, both Cairo and Arabic have always kind of been touchstones for me. And so then when it came time, you know, to go to college, I basically, you could say I repatriated myself and attended the American University in Cairo back when it was still in its downtown Tahrir location. And college, uh, I mean, it was very transformative for me in the sense that I actually got to be immersed uh, in Cairo and in the downtown area. And at an intellectual level, at that point, history was not something that I was interested in. I really hovered around the social sciences. I kind of almost wandered around them like a peripatetic, you know, kind of in search of the perfect discipline, Uh, but ended up after kind of... uh, moving between anthro political science and specifically an interest in political theory, I kind of settled on psychology. And at the time I had an interest in pursuing a, a, a degree in clinical psychology. In the end though, not just my experiences at AUC, but also my work experiences after graduating from college uh, and specifically a lot of the places that I travel to, um, whether for research or for work, you know, places like Zinholm in Cairo and Thantha uh, and Minya, so places in the Delta and in Upper Egypt, uh, led me to an interest in kind of Middle East studies. And I ended up pursuing an interdisciplinary degree at NYU that was actually, um, I think, really shaped me as a scholar. So, and then I think at an intellectual level, one of the things that kind of growing up in between two cultures is that it, it really makes you think very seriously about encounters and what it means uh, to actually um, produce knowledge uh, or to exist in different ways across the space of, um, of two different cultures, across the space of tradition, across the space of human difference, however we might want to refer to that. And then also uh, kind of very pragmatically, but I think it's also it also ends up being a theoretical interest, um, the interest in translation. 
right? What does it mean to kind of translate uh, between languages? What does it mean to translate between different social spaces? And I think the interest in translation is something that has kind of sustained me both as, um, as a form of practice, but also kind of thinking about theoretically what, what the work of translation does. Um, so you, when I think of your work, I sort of would categorize your work as intellectual history, even the history of ideas. Um, would you identify with that? And if so, how would you define your work in intellectual history and cultural history in the Middle East? And sort of how do you frame your approach between these different lenses? I mean, you mentioned translation right now, for example, and the issue of different languages. Yeah, I definitely identify as an intellectual historian. And it's one of those things I know it's considered uh, a little like if you look at the pie charts where they show uh, how people are distributed within the field of history, that intellectual history is something um, uh, interest in that is uh, decreasing. But I would say that I think in Middle East studies, there's been a bit of a resurgence of interest in it. But intellect, uh, my, my training, and especially my training at Princeton um, in the history department, was specifically actually in European intellectual history. And that it was in many ways a cornerstone of, um, of that training. And I think that training in, kind of indelibly marks the Arabic Freud. And it was an, the, sec, the second book was an opportunity for me um, to kind of really uh, immerse myself in, in that uh, subfield. And so if we think about intellectual history kind of generally and sort of set aside like all the different debates um, and kind of methodological um, disagreements within the subfield, I think there's generally an agreement that it's, um, it concerns itself with the study of texts, oftentimes philosophical texts, and that's one of the things that draws me to it, and an attempt to kind of situate these texts and their larger historical meaning within different contextual fields. And so my own personal predilection is for uh, conceptual history uh, that we could see, you know, the work of someone like Reinhard Kozelik as being influential uh, uh, to my own understanding. And then methodologically, uh, the work of Michel Foucault and specifically, you know, uh, archaeology and genealogy. In terms of Arab intellectual history, I think there's kind of particular challenges that we face when trying to write Arab intellectual history. And one of those is how can we think about the role of ideas and how can we think about the role of text in a world of asymmetrical power relations? So it's kind of... uh, I think it's it's actually in many instances very challenging, which is how can we avoid, and this is something I've sort of written about elsewhere and deal with the book, I think obliquely, avoid dealing with the, reducing the global modern subject to originals and bad copies, originals uh, being presumed to be found in Europe and these kind of bad copies being found elsewhere. And so I think that's a challenge that we really need to seriously take up. And then another another aspect about intellectual history that I've been thinking about um, quite a bit, and this is going to sound it's going to sound a little bit circuitous, but it's that for me, intellectual history it has to still be intellectual. So it can't just be about the political or the social or the sociological examination of different intellectuals, right? Or even reducing their um, the, the ideas of these intellectuals to their political circumstances uh, and so forth. So in other words. Uh, and I'm talking specifically when we're talking about kind of Arab intellectual history, 
how can we um, have an intellectual history that engages the actual content of our historical interlocutors and not just engages the content by situating it contextually, but actually tries to think about how um, those ideas form a contribution to knowledge production um, more generally, right? And so that's something that I think in uh, European intellectual history that's kind of taken for granted, uh, but that uh, that's something that I feel becomes a little bit, it's a little bit more of uh, an effort uh, to make to make that point when you're working on um, non-European traditions. I definitely think that's something I noticed about your book is that you sort of treat the world of these intellectuals dealing with psychoanalysis in Egypt as one seamless world. Freud and Ibn Arabi um, exist in one world space and this one intellectual sphere that sort of they can build ideas on and bounce ideas off of. Um, so more specifically, how did this book emerge? Um, it's very different from your last project. Yeah, it is pretty different. I think, I don't know how people, um, how it'll be received, but I think for some people it's it's almost a bit jarringly different from the first book, but I, I like I like that difference. Um, so as I kind of mentioned, I studied psychology at AUC, and when I was there, I was pretty interested in the work of, you know, Freud, of Sigmund Freud, and especially in the relationship between psychoanalysis and feminism. And that's something that I, you know, that I get to revisit in the book. Uh, and so this, this was a project that a project on, you know, I guess when I initially started out, I thought it would be sort of a project on the history of psychology and that, you know, and psychoanalysis. Uh, and that seemed a great way to combine the earlier interest of my interest, the earlier um, interest I had in the history of the human sciences as in the first book, as you said, um, with my longstanding enthusiasm for psychoanalysis. So I really, you know, I, I was relished the opportunity to actually go back and immerse myself much more deeply into the psychoanalytic canon. But at the same time, I really wanted to do something different from the first book. And it's interesting because even in the writing process, I, I remember there was one point when I was writing where, you know, as I usually do, and as I tell everyone to do when they're even writing their dissertation, I had my chapter outlines and my abstracts for each, you know, my, of each argument for the, um, uh, for each chapter. And where I kind of stepped back and said, you know, I don't want this to turn into a conventional history of a discipline, right, that would focus on sort of institutional itineraries, and also that I didn't want it to be kind of a reception history, you know, that would kind of exhaustively catalog everything that had been written about Freud in Egypt or, or elsewhere. That um, I wanted to do something different, and this maybe speaks to my longstanding interest in anthropology, that I almost in an ethnographic sense that I wanted to stage an encounter. And so what I think hopefully that I do in the book is that I hit kind of both stage and historically reconstruct an encounter between psychoanalysis and Islam in in um, in modern Egypt and specifically in the post in the post-war period. And so each chapter then focuses on a kind of a specific concept or as I think you were just articulating almost like a problem space centered around a concept. So chapter one kind of deals with the unconscious and then chapter two with ethics and then the subsequent chapters with sexuality. <clears throat> and the law. And what I wanted to show was how these, this 
علم النفس like this new science of the soul or kind of um, translated more flatly or literally as psychology was inextricably linked to Islam and mysticism and I wanted to trace these specific interactions between psychoanalytic theory and Islamic concepts so again like taking you know like in chapter one um, looking at uh, Ibn, uh, the way in which Ibn Arabi's notion of Al-Sha'ur um, you know is uh, sort of translated as the unconscious or how the unconscious is translated in those terms and then later the use of um, Al-Ghazali's concept of Gariza uh, and how that is kind of differentially translated and expanded to mean both instinct and to draw the distinct the Freudian distinction between instinct and drive sexual drive so that's that's kind of what that's sort of the genesis of the project and how how I thought of it as I was working on it so what sort of sources did it take to assemble this project? Because I know that's something you've written about before in, um, in great um, detail is sort of one of the problems we face in the study of the Middle East, uh, particularly historically, is, of is archives, um, partially because of the current state of the region, but also historically different developments that have shaped archives. Absolutely. And I think the question of art, the archive is always an interesting one and kind of a, a challenging one, exactly as you say, um, for us and also for intellectual historians. I mean, as by and large, um, although not exclusively, oftentimes intellectual history can be written through the use of published sources. And I rely uh, almost exclusively on, on published sources for this um, this project. And so in a sense, my main archive was really uh, Majalat al-Mannafs, the Egyptian journal. Egyptian journal. Um, uh, 1945 to 1953, and you know it's it's a journal, and it was sort of eight volumes, and I literally, you know, I read the entire uh, journal pretty much um, from cover to cover, and I don't, I don't, uh, and did a lot of translations, which is part of actually part of how I work and how I write is just you know doing just translations sort of for myself, um, that then become the sort of my primary source base, but. Uh, one of the things that was interesting is that the like getting reading the journal really gave me this bird's eye view of this nascent field of psychology that's emerging and also kind of enabled me uh, to see how these different divergent approaches uh, were taken. And then, of course, there were certain individuals that I gravitated toward, uh, Yusuf Murad being one of them, one of the co-editors of um, of the journal and also a prolific author in his own right. And so I read all of his books and many of the texts uh, that he himself read and and ancillary materials, you know, biographical, a lot of the sort that I think those of us who work on the region tend to read, but, um, you know, specifically biographical dictionaries. Um, there's actually a dictionary of psychoanalysis and psychology that was uh, useful. I also read obituaries. That's, you know, that's what, those are some of the ways that we um, can piece together um, different aspects and elements of, um, of our historical protagonists and their, their lives. So I read very, very widely. But my concept of the archive, I think, as you were hinting earlier, it also included uh, a lot of the medieval texts uh, that my my that my uh, my authors and historical interlocutors were reading. So Ibn Arabi, Al Ghazali, Al Kushairi. There's just a huge. Um, that's it's it's in itself was kind of massive, as well as um, the uh, psychoanalytic. What I keep kind of shorthand referencing as the psychoanalytic canon. So the standard edition of Freud and some of the other analysts that people were reading. 
But then for this project, um, different, not completely, but a, a little bit different from the first book, I also had kind of an on a more interpersonal level. And so I was able to track down uh, Yusuf uh, Murad's son, Samir Murad, who's a practicing psychiatrist, as it turns out, here in the United States. And that was a very kind of unique and special form of engagement for me. Uh, and sometimes as historians, I don't I don't know. I mean, it is sort of the business that we're in, but I'm. It's it really brought home for me, kind of acknowledging the ways in which our work always spans the communication between the and the dead, and so it just it just gave um, the research an added layer of meaning. And I'd be really remiss if I didn't mention. Um, the person who uh, helped me when I was in Cairo, and this is kind of a couple of years before I even started working on the project, um, back when I was on a Fulbright in Egypt and I was thinking about what kind of direction I wanted to go in, I um, had a book buyer, which is really not an adequate concept at all. Um, he's really an intellectual historian in his own right by the name of um, Muhammad Ali, who was in um, Al Azbakiya. And I would go there pretty much, you know, on Fridays uh, and kind of just sift. He would, I would talk to him about my research and what uh, I was interested in working on and what uh, basically like just having an intellectual conversation that helps the person, you know, the other person kind of get a sense of how you think and, and what your interests are. And he would just, you know, every week there would be these huge, huge piles of books that I would go through and I would kind of be sifting through and looking uh, while sifting tea, of course, um, and trying to, you know, uh, trying to think about sort of what interested me. Obviously, I collected much more than I ended up using, but it I don't know, the principle, I think for intellectual history in particular, for all history, actually, the principle of selection is crucial. And there's so there's there's always an element that's kind of um, connected to our own preferences and antipathies. And that's why I mentioned kind of my early interest in psychoanalysis is kind of drawing me out and helping me, um, you know, kind of select and focus on certain intellectual figures and certain um, certain strands within uh, the discipline and within the literature. No, I identified with so much of that, particularly because I've had my own similar experiences of going to book buyers, looking for rare editions of newspapers to use, um, but also this idea of the created archive, the fact that um, you can actually get a whole lot out of um, certain sources like newspapers and published books and obituaries if you read them a certain way and cast them in a certain light. Um, and I think often, I mean, we can complain all we want about the fact that our archives are being taken away from us um, in certain countries of the Middle East, but at the same time, it forces us to be more creative and come up with theses that shed light on different aspects of these histories. And I think you mentioned earlier that intellectual history in the Middle East is sort of something that's gone in and out of vogue, and that has to do a lot with the way Islamic studies has developed as well. And I think that this going in and out of vogue actually has to do a lot with the sources and the sources that are available, but also currents and history and without it. So it's, yeah, I identified with a lot of what you said. So in particular, I think you you sort of defined um, what I would hope to ask you next, which was what, what made Egypt the site of this project. And it seemed very clear that it's rooted in this magazine that you worked on, this journal. Um, but I was hoping you gave us a sense of what this time and place looked like um, for your actors and, and the ideas you're studying. 
so definitely it's set in post-war Egypt, as you're saying. And I think one of the things for me is when we when we think of this time period, um, I think we tend to benchmark it with sort of major political events. Uh, and sometimes these can be wars or they can be kind of um, uh, post-colonial uh, upheavals and so forth. Some, you know, 1948, 1952, etc. But for me, what was really significant, the more and more I read was how it was a moment like that what it, what it looked like for example um uh when standing in uh Yusuf Murad's salon that he ran you know on on Friday mornings right I wanted to kind of try I, that was something that actually began like re, especially reading the obituaries that I could I actually felt like I could see you know see it and feel it that, that what was happening in the post-war period was that it was really a moment of deep engagement with all, a lot of the major animating questions of the human sciences. And these were things that took place, they took place in, you know, obviously in university settings, as we could imagine, in places like Cairo and Alexandria, but especially in a setting like this Friday morning salon. And this is something that took place at, you know, at Murad's home. And so in the book, I discuss some of the members who, t- who were a part of it, and that also helped bring to life that particular moment. So, you know, they included psychologists, philosophers, Marxists, translators, short story writers, literary critics, etc. And I wanted to capture that space of intellectual engagement, which of course, because of the time period, was also a very, uh, a deeply decolonizing space, right? In the sense, you know, like, what do we mean by that? In the sense of being concerned with projects that would emancipate the colonized from colonial rule. But at the same time, it was, and that's like the content of their discussions, was also a space of intellectual, you know, kind of deep intellectual engagement with the philosophical traditions of Western Europe. So I wanted to, I wanted to capture that moment, which I think is actually um, kind of unique historically. The other aspect is sort of the post-war. And I think if we think about this moment as being immediately after the war, but also uh, sort of immediately prior to uh, formal decolonization, if we conceptualize that as the expulsion of the British, um, that questions regarding the creation, like the questions that kind of um, maybe animated my first book, questions uh, regarding the creation of a national subject are very much at the forefront of the, you know, kind of the wider public sphere. But, and this is what seemed so crucial to me, both psychoanalysis and philosophy, they offer really important um, prisms from which we can critique the present and from which we can critique the political exigencies of our present moment. And so what I ended up seeing is that this kind of led to a tension that ultimately you know, I try, I try to view as being pr- productive between pragmatic political agendas, you know, whatever we could uh, give an example could be like thinking about something like industrialization projects, right? Um, and more ethical philosophical concerns that were related to what constitutes the good life for man. So, uh, and those more ethical um, philosophical questions are questions that like, if we go back you know, even to to Freud and his um, thoughts on for the times of war and death, uh, which are thoughts that are also relevant for us today, um, which are thoughts that come to mind and that come to bear, particularly in the aftermath of a cataclysmic war, and also uh, that have a bearing on the work of imagining a future, a future which is both political and social, but also deeply psychological. So that's kind of, um, that's sort of the the post-war uh, post-colonial that I that I wanted to capture a bit. 
So we've mentioned him a couple of times, so I thought maybe we would um, just give him a bit more color and character. Uh, the character of Yusuf Murad runs through this book um, as a very sort of thick thread. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about him, sort of flesh him out a bit more for us. Sure, sure. Well, Murad, he was born in Cairo and he studied, uh, he studied philosophy because I think that's, you know, that becomes significant in terms of thinking about all of these intersections between psychology and philosophy uh, that come to bear on this uh, nascent discipline. And he traveled to France uh, for his doctorate in psychology, which he received in 1940. Um, and that you know, that pattern of, uh, especially for those of us who are working on this time period, it's actually a familiar pattern to many of us in Arab intellectual history, which is to say an intellectual who is trained, um, you know, in the region, in Egypt, through, uh, for, through the BA, and then uh, travels for doctoral studies, and then returns, um, and sort of thinking about the, that, those kinds of intellectual and social itineraries. But again, what what I found compelling about Murad, and when I went into the project, actually, I absolutely did not think that I was going to, um, you know, to write about him. I was there was another. There was the other, his co-editor that I was uh, that several people had told me that was who I needed to write about, and who was uh, the person who was the main conduit of the of the Freudian uh, tradition in Egypt. I mean, by the name of Mustafa Ziwar. Uh, but when I ended up reading his work, one of the things that I realized, uh, and kind of as I said, sort of reading through the obituary is this is someone who basically created an intellectual world upon his return to Cairo and not just by, I think a lot of us in university settings can identify with this, not just by teaching psychology, right? And he was the first person to teach psychology in Arabic at Cairo University, not just by chairing the philosophy department, which he did in the, you know, in the mid to late 1950s, and not just by publishing and co-editing the journal, but it was also by writing, thinking, and engaging larger audiences in Arabic. And that maybe this, you know, in a way connects to like how we started off in terms of thinking about the biographical and my, my kind of interest in, in the question of translation uh, kind of as a mode of being. And so what I found um, fascinating about him was that he, he was actually creating a lexicon, right? A new lexicon for the discipline of psychology. And that lexicon, and everyone mentions this in, in sort of thinking about it, and he himself discusses it expansively, that this, the creation of uh, terms that would be, you you know, for example, how you one translates uh, the unconscious or uh, the concept of the drive. Uh, he, he always wanted to go back to the classical Arabic traditions and to draw on those traditions, whether from Abu Bakr al-Razi, al-Ghazali, or Ibn Arabi. And so that was, I think, uh, maybe uh, it helps explain sort of what what drew me to him personally. And maybe one sort of last thing, I know these are all kind of um, uh, sort of intellectual attachments in a sense that I have to him, uh, was that in contrast to some of the other uh, intellectuals that I read, he, he was so innovative and creative in the sense that he drew from kind of multiple traditions, not just as a, as the way in which we've been discussing traditions here, but also even from within like the subdiscipline of psychology. So that's what I, you know, he wasn't by any stretch of the imagination kind of an orthodox Freudian at all. I mean, in fact, he, he did um, have certain critiques that he developed of Freud. So that, that's, um, that's what I think I found um, compelling about him and that helped him uh, emerge as this figure. And also the fact that he was, 
was um, clearly an amazing mentor. And so kind of seeing uh, the work of his students, it really helped flesh out for me kind of uh, an intellectual world uh, that sometimes you know, we, we were not always able to reconstruct. No, his dynamism is definitely something you brought out well in the book. And I think you get a sense of just how, you know, I, I again, don't want to use the term bounces between different worlds, because this is clearly all part of his purview and how he, his worldview and how he was trained and also how he thinks about um, expressing different ideas and those ideas themselves. Um, and one of those sort of one element of his thought, um, which I don't think you expect to see in a book about post-colonial, post-war Egypt is Sufism, which emerges as this very, I mean, it's very much part of this. I mean, like you said, this is where he derives a lot of his vocabulary um, instead of just, you know, Arabizing a word, for example, which happens quite frequently in the vocabulary. Um, So I was... I mean, one thing that's so interesting about Sufism, and I think this is something that gets lost in a lot of the ways in which we talk about Sufism, both within the academy, but outside the academy, um, is that people sort of um, bring it back down to this very basic mysticism. But I think when we talk about Sufism, it's sort of the same as when we talk about Islam. There are really many Islams and many Sufisms. So what sort of Sufism or Sufisms um, do, do Murad and his colleagues and contemporaries draw on? And do you think there's just a specific reason they draw on Sufism? Um, is it this idea of the self that runs very much through Freud's thought and Murat's? That's a great question. I'll talk about the self in a second. But I think if we step back for a second and think about, I mean, I, as uh, probably uh, comes out in the book, uh, I am drawing on um, uh, Talal Assad and the, this whole concept of kind of um, Islam as a discursive tradition. So in the same way that we might take certain elements to be crucial to Islam as a discursive tradition, I think we can likewise take certain elements to be crucial to Sufism as a strand within that tradition. And so, you know, like, let's be a little bit more concrete and in and maybe um, talk about another uh, historical protagonist in the text, which I discuss in, uh, that I discuss in chapter two, who I discuss in chapter two, and that's Abu Wafa al-Ghanimi I also discuss his mentor a little bit uh, in there as well. But for Taftazani, and again, this probably explains my intellectual attachment as well, he's he's developing a lexicon of Sufism that he's presenting to his audience. And it's it's to an an audience largely of, um, you know, we could say, we could almost perceive of them as like an external audience in a sense, an audience that may not be entirely familiar um, with Sufism, its multiple variants and traditions. And I think you're absolutely right. There are numerous and divergent strands as you're implying but if we read Taftazani's writings in this time period, he, you know, he's basically trying to think about sort of what are the core elements that constitute like certain concepts, practices, and sensibilities as Sufi, and he's trying to convey that and communicate that to his audience, right? Notwithstanding differences and even conflicts of interpretation and so forth. And so, um, in terms of uh, Taftazanian kind of. Uh, the strands that he's drawing on, he's drawing very largely on, uh, very heavily on Al-Iskandari, who died in 1309, and who, um, uh, about whom he had written, uh, you know, a thesis, uh, and whose work kind of crops up continuously. He's also drawing on Ibn Arabi, right? And so that's uh, coming through uh, in his writings. 
And what I find especially fascinating about the way, and he, so he, Taftazani, he wrote, he wrote in a, a number of different venues, but um, some of the texts that I analyze, you know, that I do these really close readings of are uh, articles that he wrote for Miguel Alman Nafs for the journal, uh, and that he wrote on, you know, the psychology of Sufism, like very explicitly drawing in this question of uh, psychology and the question of, um, of psychological language to talk about a variety of things ranging from, you know, the phenomenology of, of um, sort of mystical states uh, and uh, to, uh, to the topography and architecture of the self. And what was interesting about the way that he was writing is that he's explicitly drawing on both a Quranic and a religious language. You know, so he'll he'll be referencing uh, a nafs al I guess which we could translate as the rueful self, and nafs al-mutma'inna, the tranquil self. So these are concepts that are taken uh, from the Quran. Uh, he discusses the idea idea and practice of jihad and nafs, the struggle that ensues between the self and sort of the lower, the lower self, uh, in, you know, kind of within Sufi practice, he talks about zikr as a form of Sufi practice and, and discusses kind of, um, uh, you know, these very sort of dense concepts and parses them out for his audience. And when, and in so doing, he's actually also drawing on the language of psychology and psychoanalysis. So a lot of his writings are just kind of peppered with discussion of, you know, explicit discussion of the unconscious, explicit discussion of repression and of what, you know, so for example, drawing out the difference between what repression means uh, within uh, Sufism uh, as opposed to what it might mean, you know, within a psychoanalytic framework, discussing introspection, uh, you know, the concepts of also manifest and latent content. So that's, uh, that's very significant and forms an important uh, uh, intersection for him. Um, One thing that's important to note is that I think unlike psychology, uh, within Sufism, you know, and and Taftazani is very explicit about this, knowledge of the self is ultimately placed upon the path of knowledge of God and love of God. And so that's that's a, a crucial distinction. And then, if I guess I could just maybe make one like last point about this, um, in that cha- in you know in the chapter, and Sufism comes up throughout. But one of the things, um, you know, I, I guess in in some sense, I hope I'm speaking a bit to Islamic studies, but I'm also really speaking to psychoanalysis. And within psychoanalysis, again, it's a a diverse tradition that has multiple strands, oftentimes con- conflicting of interpretation. Uh, but one of the things is that there has been a strand that has had a basically a negative view toward religion, you know, kind of viewing religion as an illusory wish fulfillment and and so forth. And so that's something that I wanted to address as well. So you've used the term hybridization several times in the book, just sort of to continue along with this discussion of actually of Islamic studies. Um, So how do we, what was your approach to writing about traditions that we identify as Western versus the Islamic tradition? Or do you think often this dichotomy is false? Is it useful at all? Um, well, you know, it's true. It's true. I do use the term hybridization. 
Uh, and if I were to be completely honest, I would say I'm not entirely comfortable with the term insofar as it sometimes seems to imply that we have like these isolated or pure entities that then come together and interact, right? Um, and so the concept, as I think I've already, already been kind of drawing on and that, that I am comfortable with, is the concept of a discursive tradition as discussed by not just Talal Asad, but also Alistair McIntyre. So let's just take like a very simple example. So for example, if we think of the role of, of Aristotle within philosophy, right, we can see that isolating that as part of a Western rather than an Islamic tradition would actually be incredibly um, misleading. And so one of the things that I wanted to think about, and I, I don't know if um, this was sort of a way that I was uh, trying to think about uh, how it might be that someone could be reading, like someone, right, standing in um, in late 1940s, 1950s Egypt, could be reading Freud, and that what what they're reading might seem actually somewhat familiar to, uh, given what they had read, if they had read Ibn Arabi. And so I, I ended up kind of trying to think about this idea of echoes or epistemological resonances as a way to get at... Um, to get at that. And at first, I, I toyed with a bunch of things at first, and I, I have to thank uh, my colleague Joan Cadden for um, sort of shaking her head no the, in the, one of my earliest iterations of this project where I was talking about some of these, I, I was talking about some of these echoes, as I would now say, uh, as commensurabilities. And I think um, there's something that's like almost a little too like excessively clinical or philosophy of science about that. And I wanted to get, I wanted to get at um, sort of the co constant Constitution, I guess we could call it, or co-production. That's another way that I try to think about this, this co-constitution and co-production of knowledge. And it goes both ways. And that's something I think we sometimes forget. So if we take the example, and I give this example in the book, although I'm not doing that kind of work, but people are more than welcome to do that kind of work. Um, the eminent French psychoanalyst and philosopher Jacques Lacan, who references Ibn Arabi on numerous occasions, actually. And in fact, Joan Kopchak is, is working on um, this aspect, namely the relevance of medieval Islamic philosophy um, to psychoanalysis. No, I think that's, that's, I mean, at different points in the book, I think you, again, blend the idea, you sort of blend these worlds. I don't want to use the word blend because it sort of has that same aftertaste of the term hybridization. Um, but at the same time, there needs to be an emphasis that what one once thought were two different worlds should be thought of as one. And to break that down, you do need to use some sort of term. Uh, as long, but um, you at some point say that, that um, Freud echoes of an autopy. And I, I really enjoyed the use of that because again, it's thinking of these individuals within the space of, um, a single thought world. Um, but since we've been referencing it throughout our discussion, I was wondering more about the issue of the self because it's sort of, it binds together this binary that you're trying to muddle and that you're trying to dismiss. So um, if you give us a sense of what the discourses of the self are between these seemingly different traditions and how they do sort of are seen as one by Murad and his colleagues. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the whole book actually is, you know, is really, that's kind of how I started it, that I wanted to think about this topic of the self. Um, and um, 
So it's, you know, it's a, it's a massive um, topic, but I, I, I will say that one of the things that I hope the book does is that it tries to offer a way of thinking about the self that kind of moves beyond um, these kind of juxtapositions that we've gotten used to. In other words, of ways that the, the self selfhood has traditionally been understood. So for example, as either autonomous or heteronymous, as either uh, Western or non-Western. Um, and that what it really d hopefully does is kind of invites us to think through what living traditions have, living religious traditions have to offer us in terms of thinking about some of these questions um, that the analytic tradition of thinking about the self has been engaged in, whether it's ethics, arrows, and even the law. And so with respect, um, you know, maybe one way to think about the question of the self is to think about uh, like a m more specific sort of subset of it, which is to think about kind of how the question of the, the relationship between the self and the other, right? And how if we think alongside psychoanalytic and religious discourse, that one of the things that, things that that kind of enables us to do is to think about how um, the subject, the human subject, um, can be an addressee of divine and transcendental discourse, and so that's um, that becomes very significant. And so the and then it also helps us see the ways in which the relation between the self and other is actually highly theorized in the Arabic literature of the time. And so it's interesting because this happens and it, it crops up in different different parts in the book. Um, but there's this happens sort of partly through an engagement and also partly through a critique, sometimes a sustained critique of uh, specific, you know, what people would actually reference as Western philosophical notions. So, for example, like when um, in discussing some of the literature, there, there were kind of a series of articles uh, in the journal where people are discussing uh, the concept of self and other as found, let's say, in the work of Jean-Paul Sartre, who's very um, widely read uh, in Egypt and elsewhere in the Arab world. And those critiques focused on his instrumentalization, Sartre's instrumentalization uh, of the other. In other words, the way that he, the way that he viewed the relationship between the self and the other was largely instrumentalist. You know, the other as object, the other as object of even uh, object of desire, for example, and so forth. And so this, but and yet this question, because it's a fundamentally ethical question in terms of, um, and it can be seen in many different ways. So it could be, for example, how man can know himself through or in relation to the other. And the other, of course, can be understood in multiple different ways. So it can be kind of a, a concrete other. The other can be, you know, the other as my parent, the other as my neighbor, right? The other can also be understood in a social sense. And the, sometimes the term that was used was al-nahnu, like the we, right? And so the kind of the, the other as the social collective, it could be um, uh, repurposing and that people repurposed a term from Genet, this idea of the socius, the, the social, the, the other as the as element of the social or the symbolic world that's interjected or taken into the self. And of course, it can also be the divine other. And that's like in the literature, you know, like in Teftazani when he's writing about the relationship between the self and the other. It's it's really about um, this question of the um, of the divine other and how that relationship can be thought of. Uh, essentially, you know, the relationship between a self and another, uh, a transcend and a transcendental other, um, through this concept of love. And so that I think uh, gets at at some of this. Well, so the epilogue really touched a chord in particular. It's only four pages, but it, it really 
I think one thing that when, when you look at a book about sort of a post-colonial period, immediately you wonder, well, what about the dark side of colonialism in the post-colonial period and decolonization? And it really touched accordingly because you discussed the civilizing mission of international psychoanalytic associations. Um, and what I liked about it in particular as well is that you blurred the lines again. It's not just insiders to the culture and outsiders to the culture, insiders to psych- psychoanalytic um, discursive tradition and the outsiders. Um, you muddle it a bit more. Um and I think that to some extent this has a ripple effect in the academy and, and um, sort of how do you de-civilizing mission, if I can make that a verb, the historiography and sort of what can be its impact? Because I feel like that's a lot of the historiography that we've been seeing over the last 10 years has been trying to sort of muddle all of these lines and say, well, look, that there, there are these colonial traces here and there are these um, anti-colonial forces here. Mm. Yeah. The epilogue, you're right. It is. It is super short. <laughs> it was. Um, it was. Uh, it's very dense, actually, and it was. Uh, it was dense for me to write, and it was. But it was very, very important for me to write because you know there's a way in which you know I had to sort of. We always, obviously, once your book is an object in the world, um, people will read it and they'll read it kind of as they see fit. But I thought it was very important for me um, to kind of make the point about this whole question of civilizing mission and to be sure sort of that my work wouldn't be folded into um, a literature that's actually a growing literature within psychoanalysis that tries to harness its language, the language of psychoanalysis, um, uh, in order to create a normative framework for Islam or for Muslims, right? And this is something Alberto Toscano actually has critiqued. He uses a, a great phrase um, as, you know, like basically the, 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 the danger is like turning psychoanalysis into a secular clinic, right? That's, that's the phrase, the, sec- a secu- the idea of it as a secular clinic. And so I didn't want to be, I didn't want my, my book or my project to be associated with thinkers whose normative assumptions actually rest on a secular subject of analysis. I mean, in a way, that's what the whole book is sort of about. Um, but also these thinkers, and this is, it's actually, uh, you know, it's something that's, these are debates and discussions that are happening, particularly in, in places like France, uh, where people are kind of wagering on the psychoanalysis on the role of civilization and secularism as a bulwark against what they term Islamic fundamentalism, right? And so then kind of thinking about, they're thinking and it takes us back actually to that tension about sort of the pragmatic political agenda aspect and and the question of ethics. And so what for me was really important in writing is to really think through this kind of possibility of radical critique and radical critique that emerges through an ethical encounter with the other that's mediated by the domain of the unconscious, right? And ultimately, that was something that I saw in both, the, you know, that in the psychoanalytic and in the in the um, uh, religious discourses that I analyze, and that's uh, I think the privileging of the ethical, the placing the ethical at the forefront is, is certainly one way to, uh, ideally to subvert or at the very least to avoid, uh, these civilizing mission narratives. No, I, I enjoy how you sort of get it at a very different angle. I mean, then the other narratives we've seen, particularly in the study of the Middle East, which is not to say those aren't valuable. It's just good to have a diverse set of theoretical critiques of, um, how to treat this post-colonial period. Well, congratulations again on the book. I was wondering, I was wondering if we could get um, sort of a teaser of what you're working on right now. Um, are you looking for a new project? Have you already started one? 
Uh, I'm working on a bunch of different things, actually. Uh, maybe too many things. But right now, I'm doing uh, kind of like right right now. I'm working on, I guess maybe you could consider it sort of a coda to the book, where I'm uh, looking at the Arabic translation of three essays on the theory of sexuality. And so that takes place, I guess we could, since we've been talking so much about the post-colonial, in the high post-colonial period, so kind of in the late 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, and, uh, and that's something that I think think uh, you know, I'm still, I'm still, it's going to be an article. I'm still in the process of writing it, but that will help me think about the question of translation, but also help me get at once again, this question of, um, kind of pragmatic political, uh, agendas and ethical concerns because they're, uh, the individual who did the translation, a man by the name of Mahmoud Sami Ali, uh, was also involved in a, uh, in a variety of different, uh, projects and social surveys in, uh, in post-colonial Egypt. So that's kind of one way of uh, thinking about that. And then in terms of a book length project uh, that I've just, just really kind of, I'm really at the kind of conceptualization, um, you know, building an archive, you know, uh, choosing a principle of selection stage. I'm interested in the ecumenical encounter between Islam and Catholicism in modern Egypt. And so there's the Dominican Institute of Oriental Studies and Cairo is kind of a hub. Uh, it's one of the hubs for that, but there are also a number of intellectuals who were who taught uh, in Cairo. Uh, who were kind of involved at this intersection, and I'm interested again, kind of some of the same concepts that I've already talked about, and in, in thinking about uh, specific. Uh, concepts, practices, and sensibilities, and how kind of, again, thinking about the co-constitution of not just intellectual histories, but also um, so social histories of spirituality. But I'm, I'm kind of in the post-war period, I can say, you know, just that's something that in doing the second book, I've really fallen in love with the time period and I'm, I'm happy to kind of, I'm going to, I'm probably going to hang out in the post-war for a bit. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate that because in an earlier life, like about two years ago, I wanted to do the post-war period. So, and one of my frustrations was there was so little excellent scholarship on that period. And now it's starting to change. We have your book, we have Yoav DiCapua's new book. It's just, it's a really exciting time. It is an exciting time. Anyway, thank you so much. I really Thank appreciate you so it. much. All right. This was really fun. Bye. Take care. Bye.